We're on? All right. Good morning, Sovereign Grace. How are you? All right. Today, we have lots to do and we have lots to be thankful for. We praise Jesus for many things. Um, The life of a Christian is a life of thanksgiving, not only this week, but we do have a lot of specifics to be thankful for. I want to go on record thanking both of you for serving the Lord with gladness here for us. We do, we do appreciate it, and we thank you. We praise God for your life and service. Amen. We're also very happy that everything went well with Robin. Robin, Sean's mom, surgery went well. It wasn't cancer. The Lord has blessed us once again with his provision, his care, the care of the body for each other. And we only have to say thanks to him because he is a good God, and he sustains us every day. Amen? <clears throat> every beginner level writer, novel writer knows that to write a good novel, to write a good story, you need, need to have a few good key elements. You need to have a villain. You need to have a plot, a murder plot maybe. You need to have a good guy and a victim. Today we are going to look at a story that has all of these elements. And I want to call your attention to the Lord Jesus. It's a very emotional story, but it's not about the victim, the villain. It is about the Lord Jesus. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please click, scroll, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 7. Gospel of John chapter 7, we will read the last verse of the chapter and we'll invade chapter 8 all the way through verse 11. It is a beloved story. The church has loved and accepted this, this passage of scripture throughout the ages. It reveals the character of Jesus. It reveals the heart of God. It reveals that He alone can forgive sin, it reveals the hypocrisy of sin, but I do have to be honest with you, it is a disputed passage, it is a passage that maybe your Bible will have a footnote or will have a parenthetical statement saying that the earliest manuscripts do not contain these 12 verses. Some manuscripts do contain these verses. In, in other places, one of them even have them in one particular manuscript, even have this portion of scripture in the Gospel of Luke. I will not bore you with all of the details, but this has been a passage accepted by the church. Augustine seems to, to uh, he actually uh, uh, says, this, he suggests that um, in the early church, they actually stopped copying, uh, wrongly obviously, but they stopped copying this passage of scripture because they didn't feel like it took a strong enough stance against sexual immorality. Someone tried to give God a hand. If you understand the passage, it does speak loudly against immorality, against sin. And like I said, I will not bore you with all of the details. I will say that it does fit the chronology of John. It does fit the style of what's been happening as far as one event happening, chapter 5, and then a sermon, chapter 6, 
an event and a sermon. Chapter 7, an event and a sermon. It does fit well the flow and chronology. I believe it, it is an authentic passage. It does belong where it's at. And I will treat it as nothing but the inspired Word of God. As we go through it, I would like to uh, ask God's blessing first, and then we'll read it, and uh, we will start uh, our sermon. Amen? So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you, through your Spirit, you make yourself present in the midst of the worship of your people. I thank you for the forgiveness of sin that is found only in the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would let us behold the beauty of his holiness today and fall in love with him even more. We want to fall in love with Jesus even more. And we depend on you to do that, O oh Father. I pray for your supernatural empowerment as the word goes forth that you would work great and mighty things in the hearts of your people today. I pray that in the beautiful name of Jesus for his glory and our joy. Amen. All right, starting with um, 753 all the way through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Like I said in my little introduction, this is a story that contains all the good elements of a good, of a good novel, a good plot, a victim, a villain, a good guy. And it is easy to look at this story and get caught in the emotion of the passage, to get caught in the suffering of this woman who many will say that she is a prostitute, that she is a woman of ill repute in town when the text bears no such overtone. There are speculations and they might even be true. But the text does not tell us that this is a woman famous in town. 
Jesus is the point of this story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the point of this story. And I want to call your attention to the way this portion of Scripture begins, which is with the homelessness of Jesus. I am very glad that the Holy Spirit pointed this out, that the Holy Spirit puts it in there. We cannot just read this and brush over this. Can you imagine the creator of the, of the universe? He left the worship of angels, the majesty of heaven, to come and save us. And He took humanity upon Himself and He lived on earth as a man, just like you and me, as a human being. And He didn't, he didn't even live in such favored conditions. The man did not have a place to lay his head. Everybody, after the, the conflict they experienced in chapter 7, his accusers all went each to their own house. And Jesus went to spend the night at the Mount of Olives. We cannot just pass this over and not recognize the humanity and the humility of our God who came to save and He lived as a poor, homeless man. He wasn't a bum. He was homeless. When everybody goes to their house, He goes to the Mount of Olives. If I understand the chronology of this passage, this is right after, or maybe even on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. That is early October, which is fall in Jerusalem. Everybody knows that in the fall nights can get a little chilly, especially if you're in the outdoors. If you don't have a roof over your head and a warm bed and a pillow to lay your head on. Jesus Christ spent the night outdoors, most likely in fellowship with His Father. In the early morning He gets up and He does not complain about the rough night that He had just spent. He does not complain about back pain. He does not do anything else other than head straight to the temple to teach the people. Right? Isn't that what the Word says? Early in the morning, verse 2. He came again to the temple. All the people came to Him and He sat down and taught them. So He's teaching the people and all the people are coming to Him. I mean, it's a considerable crowd. When, when John says, all the people, it's not, you know, a couple of guys. It's a considerable crowd. There, there's a, a, a considerable number of people that are coming to hear Jesus' teaching. Okay? It doesn't take long before the scribes and the Pharisees show up. I mean, it's constant opposition to His ministry. It seems like the Lord Jesus does not have one... He cannot catch a break. I mean, he's just at the temple teaching the people. And it doesn't take very long. This is early in the morning. These people have an agenda. These people, they want to catch the Lord Jesus at any cost. And early in the morning, the sole purpose of their being, of their existence, is to bring this woman to Jesus, to trap Jesus. And then bring this woman and... They accuse her publicly. And they humiliate this woman. They, they will bring her. And the text says that they 
placed her in the midst. They placed, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. I mean, like I said, it's a considerable amount of people. Considerable, it's like a small crowd. It's certainly more people than you would like to be present if your adultery is being exposed. And they make sure that they don't even, you know, leave the woman aside, approach the rabbi, hey, we have a situation, you know, maybe after the lecture you could address this with us. That's not what they do. They bring the woman and they place her in the midst of the crowd. Probably right before Jesus, and everybody's looking at Jesus, and they accuse her publicly. They proclaim, they make public her sin. She was caught in adultery. Actually, that's what the text says, that this woman had been caught in adultery. And I cannot help but wonder, how was she caught in adultery? Because, after all, people try to hide those acts. right? But the text goes on to say, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act, in the act of adultery. I cannot help but wonder, how, how would they know such information? How would these people know when the adultery was going to take place? She was probably caught last night. This is early in the morning. We all know that statistically, those things tend to happen when everybody else is sleeping, when people are not going to see. People, in general, or statistically, they don't commit adultery in public so everybody can see. These things are not done in general in broad daylight. So this woman probably was arrested last night. Now, they don't have public lighting. It's not like there are light poles everywhere in Jerusalem. They don't have it. Tents and houses are dark. I mean, it's pitch black. How would these people have such information? How would they know where this adulterous woman would be committing adultery? Is she in a dark tent, in a dark house? How would they know the time? How would they know that the act had begun if they're behind walls? At this point, this just sounds a little fishy. It sounds like they have a, a whole lot of information that would be very tough to obtain. On the other hand, the one thing that would be very, very easy to obtain, namely, the guy they fail to produce. I mean, where in the world is this guy? Adultery is a sin that you cannot commit alone. You need another party. Adultery is the sin of having sexual intimacy with when you're married with someone that is not your spouse or with someone that is married to somebody else. Which is different from fornication, which is sexual intimacy outside of matrimony, outside of the covenant of marriage. But how in the world do they know all these things, but they don't produce the guy? I mean, one commentator goes so far as to say that if this had really happened, they would be able to catch the guy. I mean, I want to say, I'm not sure that this is all an invention, but I would say that given the guy's circumstances, when he gets caught, he, even if he's able to shake them off, let's say he's a good wrestler and he, he's afraid and he jumps out and he leaves, 
it wouldn't go very far. Agreed? People wouldn't open the door for this guy. You know, I mean, he, it's not hard to locate a naked guy running in the streets alone. Right? Well, let's say he knocked on somebody's door, they opened. No, they didn't. I mean, you come knocking on my door naked, I'm calling the, the cops. I'm calling 911 for you. So it wouldn't be very hard to produce this guy to, to say, yeah, he ran away, but we located him immediately. But somehow, even with all these, this, uh, uh, these circumstances against him, he is able to manage to not be brought before Jesus. He manages to avoid the humiliation of being accused in, in, in public. Which is very, at this point, it just smells corruption, doesn't it? It's just too weird of a story. It just smells like corruption. I mean, why aren't they producing the guy? Verse 5 might clue us in a little bit on, um, on, on, on what's happening here. It seems like there's a little bit of hate. You know, maybe they love the guy who was, maybe it was one of them. That's another commentator's position. Maybe the guy was even one of the scribes and Pharisees and he's being protected. Maybe he's someone prominent in society and they decided not to expose him. But verse 5 will say that, I think it does clue us in on the fact that there's a little bit of hate going on. Let's, let, let's go on and, and read what verse 5 says. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? To stone such women? Are you kidding me? Does the law say stone the adulterous woman? That's not what the law says. They, they are referring to, the, to, to uh, Leviticus 22. If you have your Bible, please go there. We're going to read two passages. Leviticus uh, 20 verse 10. I'm sorry. Leviticus 20 verse 10. They're referring to the law of Moses, which does condemn adultery. Horrible, grievous sin. I'm not sure that's what the verse says. I'm not sure the law says stone the woman. Leviticus verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 10. This is what the law says about adultery. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Does it say only the woman? Now, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 22. The other passage that condemns adultery. <clears throat> I want you to look at it so you can see the twisting of the Scripture, which is key. In, in religious hypocrisy. Chapter 22, verse 22 of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the law, the last book of Moses. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, who shall die? Both shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. The law nowhere says... Oh, you should stone such women. But in fact, there is what they're saying. 
they are distorting the word of God, it seems like, to serve their wicked purposes. Because it's clear that the law doesn't say women. The law says the women and the men. The man and the woman shall surely die. Men, you need to understand this, men and all women, they are guilty when the sin of adultery takes place. Marriage is a covenant, is a union, a holy divine mandate from God that reflects His own faithful character. It reflects and displays the faithfulness of God. It is God revealing His nature and characters, His character through marriage to us. When the sin of adultery takes place, this faithfulness is betrayed, and that is a assault to the very nature and glory of God. Therefore, making either the woman or the man guilty of an assault to God's glory, worthy of punishment. God will not be robbed of His glory, and that is exactly what adultery does. It butchers the display of the character of God. So, gender will not excuse you. The law condemns both men, uh, a man or woman that commit adultery. They're both guilty. That's what the law says. That's not what they are saying. As you read the story, it just looks more and more like corruption. Verse 6 will, will tell us that this is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to test him. Why? So that they might have some kind of charge against him. Okay? Now, I want you to, to look at verse 5. Before we get to verse 6, let's dwell on verse 5 a little bit because are these people really looking for direction? Do they have a, a sincere question on what the law says? Do they have a law question? Or are they asking for Jesus' wisdom on interpreting Scripture? They're not. They're not. They're stating what the law says. This woman has been caught in, a, in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. They don't have a law question. They don't have a scriptural question. They're just stating they know what the law says. They are affirming, they're stating what they're supposed to do. Now, if you know what God's opinion is, who cares what anybody else thinks? These people, they devoted their lives, the scribes and Pharisees, they devoted their lives to the preservation, both oral and physical, of the law of God. These people wrote, they copied the scriptures. Day in and day out. These people taught the scriptures day in and day out. That's all they did. These people have the Torah, the five books of Moses, memorized from a very early age. They live and breathe Scripture. They don't have a law question. They know very well what Scripture commands to do with adulterers. Also, historically, there's plenty of evidence that during the time of Jesus, this law wasn't enforced at all. They were not stoning people outside the city because they were adultery, adulterers. It just didn't happen. Why? And this is important as we move on, because during Roman occupation, 
Rome did allow them to have their Jewish identity, to practice their religion. One thing Rome did not allow in any occupied territory was the execution of capital punishment by any authority other than the Roman authorities. Basically, if you put someone to death, you get killed yourself. That's rebellion against the Roman government. So it's not like they were zealous about the law and they wanted to, to put someone to death to protect God's name. Because after all, this wasn't happening anyways. So as we find out these things, we see the ulterior motives in, in what they're doing. And, it, and frankly, it, it's sickening. They know very well what the penalty was. They know what the, the law says. They're not looking for Jesus' wisdom. They're not looking for Jesus' input on how to interpret and apply the law. Are they looking for direction? Do you really think that if Jesus had said, oh no, don't stone her, do you think they would say, okay, yeah, we're going to follow the rabbi because he knows more than we do? Would they blindly follow the Lord? I doubt it. I doubt it. Especially because verse 6 tells us that they did this to test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, this is a game that only church people play. Twisting the scripture to serve your sinful purposes. This is a game, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but this is a game that church people play. It's not a, an exclusive sin of the Pharisees and the scribes. To twist scripture to serve their purposes, it's not exclusive to them. It's called church history. Okay? That's what it's called. It's called church history. It's called modern, contemporary Christianity. We have become very good at playing games with the Word of God and excusing our sin. I mean, they really want to murder Jesus. We're going to get to it in a few minutes. And they're, they're clothing it with a zeal for the law, for the glory of God. We cannot have adulterers in our congregation. We need to stone her. And the guy is somewhere sipping a tea, you know. But they're clothing it with a zeal for the law. And we are no different. We have become very good at playing games with the Word of God, at playing games with the Almighty. Here's what I mean. I have heard all of these. I'm going to, cite, I'm going to quote a, a few, mention a few. I have heard all of them. I mean, my wife, she will not have anything to do with me. So I, I know it's not ideal, but it is really okay that I look at, at these filthy images because otherwise I would end up cheating on her. So, you, you know, in, in the end, I'm really saving my marriage. You know, it's, it's okay. It's not perfect, it's not ideal, but it's okay that I pollute my mind with wickedness. Because otherwise, I'm going to go commit adultery. And Jesus certainly wouldn't want me to do that. Another one of my favorites is, oh no, come on, it's not fornication. We love each other. I mean, that's the love bomb, right? God is love. He won't condemn us because, I mean, fornication is immorality. It's when you sleep around. But we love each other. I mean, we're not married, but we love each other. Now, God is love. He certainly is cornered because there's love here. Now, Jesus is trapped. You know, he certainly cannot condemn that one because I dropped a love bomb on him. 
I mean, doesn't the scripture say that God is love? Another one of my favorites is, oh, we're married in God's eyes. You know, we did this study together, and you know, and my boyfriend said, we read it, and you know, he said that, that we are married in God's eyes. You know, just a, just a note of, just counsel from a guy that is getting a little bit old. If his interpretation ends up with you two in a bedroom alone, he's probably biased. All right, girls? He's probably biased, okay? You might need a second opinion. I'm just saying. Maybe call Uncle Joe. Hey, what do you think of this text? Right? You, you might need a second opinion. I'm just, that's all I'm saying. If that ends up with you two alone, no supervision, maybe you are not married in God's eyes. And maybe it is fornication, whether you love each other or not. I mean, but these are games that only church people play. Now, we'll, let's try to zoom out of this situation, you know, and look at how futile, how vain this effort is, this attempt of trapping Jesus with the very word that he wrote that he offered, sitting in front of them, is the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence. Now let me propose a question to you. Will the creator of the universe be entrapped by his creatures, ingenuous use of his holy scripture? Really? You want to trap Jesus? I mean, as soon as you say it, you know how stupid it is. But remember, you're not immune to playing this game. We need the mercy of God to open our eyes so that we don't catch ourselves playing games and justifying our sin with Scripture. We need the mercy of God on us. God help us that we wouldn't play such games. I mean, do you know how many people are in hell right now that did not plan to go there? Do you think anybody really planned to go to hell? To absorb, to absorb God's eternal punishment and wrath, the full force of His wrath eternally? If we could send a reporter to hell to interview people, do you know how many people would say, I never planned coming here. I thought I was okay. I knew Scripture. I was a faithful member of a church. We loved each other. I did it to save my marriage. And on and on and on. You know how many people would say, I didn't plan to come here. I didn't think I was playing games. I just justified it with my scriptures and, and I went on on my sin. And I thought in the end I would be able to escape. The end came and I didn't know. God help us. To not play games with the Almighty. I mean, do you see the danger of playing games with the Almighty God? Of justifying your sin with Scripture? Of always thinking, it's okay, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. And never looking to Him for the redemption of your sins. Just going through life without any introspection, any hard look at the cross, any fellowship accepting input from 
older brothers and sisters in the faith. You know how dangerous this is? Sovereign grace, I plead with you, do not play games with God. Do not play games with God, with His Holy Scriptures. I mean, I mention hell because there is a terrifying element. Maybe you have caught it already, but there is a, maybe not. There's a terrifying element in this passage. That is exactly what they're doing. They're playing these games. And they are paving their road to hell with the Holy Scriptures. They are denying and rejecting the one who offers them living water. The one who offers them life, eternal life. And they are using the Scriptures to deny Christ. How crazy is that? That's the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, what exactly is the game they're playing? Here's the deal. We come to Jesus, we show Him the adulterous woman, and now we can trap Him because the law says she needs to be stoned. If He says, stone her, if He orders the stoning, we can deliver Him into the hands of the Romans. And they will take care of Him because now He's a rebel. And He'll be surely put to death because He is disobeying, He's rebelling against the Roman occupation, Roman government. Because it is not lawful for anybody to put anyone to death. Even when Jesus was about to die, when he was brought before Pontius Pilate in, in, in the end of the, the Gospel of John, Pontius Pilate said, you know, you guys go and judge him. And the Jews said to Pontius Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anybody to death, to put anyone to death. So Jesus on this end, apparently is cornered. He cannot order the stoning or the fulfillment of the law or the obedience to the law because if he does, he's going to be murdered or he's going to be killed by the, the, the Romans. So what's the other option? Maybe Jesus will say, no, don't stone her. To which they can reply, he's a blasphemer. He's a false teacher. And now he's denying the law of Moses. He's going against everything we ever believed. So now they can charge him with blasphemy and they can get him at least, at least, best case scenario, arrested and then pushed for his death. So either way, whatever answer Jesus gives, they are carrying out their murder plot in broad daylight, right before our very eyes. They are carrying out their murderous desires against Jesus. Where are they? At the temple, the temple that was built to worship the God who one day wrote on a tablet, you shall not murder. And they are using the scriptures to murder the very Son of God. They want to kill Jesus with his own scripture. So either way, they think they're going to kill Jesus. They, have, they want to have some charge, verse 6 says. They want to have some charge against him, and it seems like they succeeded. Now, Jesus, he gets the question. He sees the, the, the trouble in which he is. And they keep asking, verse 7, that they continually asked. They didn't come, propose a riddle, and, and stay quiet. 
they continually, look at verse 7, they continually asked. I pictured this scene as they came, brought the woman, and they kept asking. This is what the law says. What do you say? This is what the law says. She was caught in the very act of adultery. And all of them saying it, and almost in a taunting manner, demanding an answer from Jesus. And Jesus bends down and writes on the dirt. I mean, what in the world? Uh, what kind of, what in the world kind of response is this? I mean, these people are serious. They're reputable people. They know the law. They're teachers themselves. They come to him. There's a serious accusation. They, they're making a circus out of it. They place the woman in the midst of everybody. And Jesus' response is, just riding on the dirt. Now, that's puzzling. What in the world is happening here? He keeps writing. It is so obvious. Who is really in control here? They, they're trying to taunt him. They're asking him, firing questions repeatedly. And Jesus, this is so awesome. He doesn't lose his cool. He keeps writing, and he's calm. He's ready to go. He says what he says to them. And then he goes back in verse 8. And, and, and he goes back and keeps riding on the dirt. Let's read it. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be first, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, he's not really engaging them. He's not, he's not showing at least a, a physical body language. He's not showing to be very interested. He's not showing to be very engaged in, in, in what they're saying or very interested in them. I mean, when we're talking to someone and the person is writing, not looking at you, it shows that they're not paying a lot of attention. They're not very interested. And we know for a fact that Jesus does not entrust himself to the willful unbelief of men. Sincere questions, he's always there. Willful, unbelief, rebellion against him. He knows the heart of man. And Jesus keeps writing. He says what he says to them, keeps, keeps writing. But what is he writing? What did he write? I mean, don't you want to know? What did he write? I mean, one commentator will say that he was doodling. He just kept doodling. He didn't care. And frankly, I don't think Jesus was given to the practice of doodling. I don't think it fits too well in there. It, you know, maybe he was, maybe the guy is right and I'm wrong. But I don't think Jesus was just doodling. Maybe he wasn't even a good doodler. He was a teacher, right? Was he stalling for time? Another commentator will say, maybe he was stalling for time to try to figure out the puzzle. Are you kidding me? To solve the puzzle, so trying to figure out what to say? That's, not what, that, that's what I do. That's not what Jesus does. He knew, he's totally in control here. He knew very well what to say. He's not trying to stall for time to figure out how to solve the puzzle. Some have suggested that he wrote the Ten Commandments. I like this one. Maybe he, wrote, he started writing, and, I mean, you write the Ten Commandments, no man stays, you know. No man stands. In the end of the ten, no man stands. 
We all have broken them and are guilty of them. And as he kept writing, the Holy Spirit convinced them, convicted them of their sin, and that's why they left. Plausible. I, I like it, I guess. You know, um, Others have suggested that the Lord, knowing all things, and that's very colorful, I think it's kind of cool, the Lord, knowing all things, started naming and enumerating their sin. Like, for example, he looked at Bread, who was married to Jana, and he wrote, Sarah. And then, Bread was exposed. And then he wrote the word, Gluttony. And then, there goes Jimmy. Right? looked at Thomas and said, and, and wrote, embezzlement. And Thomas runs away. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's what it is. But you know what? Uh, they're very good uh, speculations, but that's all they are. It seems like the Holy Spirit made a decision to not tell us what the Lord wrote. If it were for us to know, He would have told us. Scripture contains everything we need to know for our salvation. We are not told what the Lord wrote. But there's one thing I want to say. Since we, we don't know what he wrote, this is one of the few instances where we are told that God writes something. More specifically, this is, as far as I know, this is the only instance that we are told what, that Jesus wrote something. And I think it's significant. I want you to turn to a rather obscure passage in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. I think it, it is extremely relevant for our uh, sermon today, and I think it does relate to this passage of Scripture. And it, if you buy it, you know, maybe it is right. And you're going to see that if it is right, there is a horrific implication. It's absolutely terrifying. We're going to read only one verse. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It's there. It's in the Bible. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. O Lord... The hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Does it sound familiar to our context where Jesus has just, in chapter 7, He has just invited the nation, invited every man, everyone, in, chapter, in verse 37 through 39, Jesus invites them. Any man who wants, who thirsts, let him come and drink. Believe. Come and drink. Believe. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Very similar language. Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles, he shows himself to be the source of living waters. The one who, who provides you with living water if you only... Come to Him and believe. If you drink of the living water, rivers of living water will flow out of your heart. Now, in, in Jeremiah, very similar language when he says that they have forsaken the Lord, 
the fountain of living water. Now, what is Jesus doing in chapter, in chapter 8 of John? He is writing where? Right on the earth. Now, in the context of Jeremiah, being written in the earth, it's the opposite of being written in the book of life. It being saved, being not saved. I mean, if your name is written on, on, on dirt, is one thing. If your name is written on the book of life, with the blood of Jesus, that is not going to fade away. Your name will not be blotted out from the book of life. Now, if your name is written on the dirt, future doesn't hold such a promise. Future is not as promising. The Lord gives over to death those who have forsaken Him, the fountain of living water. In writing on the dirt, I believe that Jesus is giving these guys, these scribes and Pharisees, over to death because they are rejecting Him, the fountain of living water. Very clear in our context. They are rejecting Jesus, the fountain of living water, which is a gross sin. They are committing a sin worse than the sin of the woman. And therefore, they are worthy of the punishment that they are suggesting the woman receives. I want you to see how terrifying is this, because the very judgment that they are suggesting, that they are pronouncing against this woman, God Himself is pronouncing against them. And they think they are okay. They have twisted the Scripture, and now they have succeeded in trapping Jesus. And they don't even see that Jesus is condemning them right in front of them. The blindness of sin is not allowing them to see their rejection to the one who is the fountain of living water. Isn't that terrifying? They think they're on top of their game and they know Scripture and they are being condemned by the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is giving them over to death, is likening them to the passage of Jeremiah, to the ones who reject Him. Terrifying. And these are church people. These are church people. I mean, do you see that they are using the Scriptures to take them straight into condemnation? God help us to never do that. God help us. Now, what does Jesus say? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that this answer that Jesus gives puts me out of the stone-throwing business for good. And I pray that it does the same for you. Can we agree and hope together that here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, we will be out of the stone-throwing business. Even in recognizing sin, we'll seek restoration and love for people and souls, and we'll speak life into the lives of people. Okay, maybe I'll agree. Maybe I'll agree. Okay, a couple of people want to do that. We'll work on you guys. No, seriously, can we agree and hope together that we will be a people of blessing, that we will live a life that blesses people, not condemn people. Amen? Praise God.
Praise God. Let this reply that Jesus, let these words of Jesus put us out of the stone throwing business forever and ever. Jesus just disqualified everybody present to execute her. Only God can condemn. Only God can condemn. We have no right to play God. We have no right whatsoever to play God. They all leave. They're convicted. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest. Starting with the oldest. They all leave. They're convicted of their sin. Jesus Christ has just pricked their hearts. And they all leave. Now, in leaving, they're doing two things. They are dropping the charges against the woman publicly because they're obviously not pursuing it, right? They're out, they're leaving, and they are confessing their own sin. They believe that they are disqualified to throw stones at her, to execute judgment on her. I truly believe that they realized that they were playing God and they were exposed for playing God. These church people... See the gravity of it? Playing games with the Almighty. As they leave, Jesus performs an amazing act of kindness to this woman. It, it, it really reveals the character of Jesus once again. The nature of Jesus. The heart of Jesus being a friend of sinners. Let's see, but when they heard, when they heard it, verse 9... They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, he is the only one that is sinless. He is the only one that, can that has the right and the power to condemn her and to execute her. She's left alone with him, which is exactly how it's going to be on Judgment Day. You cannot appeal to anybody else. It's you and Jesus. But anyway, uh, back to John 8. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older and Jesus, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10. He has the power and right to condemn her. Verse 10. Jesus stood up. Stop. Remember the attitude of disdain that he had, that he was kind of half engaged, he wasn't really giving them, you know, the whole attention. A certain attitude of, of disdain, of not engaging with the, the, the hypocrites. That attitude is gone now. He stands up. Jesus stands up and he treats this woman as a human being. He gives her the dignity and respect that every woman, every man, every human being longs for. Jesus restores this woman. A simple act of standing up and talking to her like a human being. She is being restored. This is probably the kindest act that someone has performed to her or towards her since God knows how long. He doesn't stop there. He says, woman, stop again. This is a term that Jesus uses to refer to his mom, to his own mother when Jesus is standing on the... when he's uh, nailed to the cross. He says... Mom, mom is standing right there with John, his kind of little brother type of buddy, you know, someone he loved. The word says, 
you know, she was there standing with the, the disciple. Jesus saw the disciple that he loved and his mother. And Jesus goes, woman, behold, here is your son. The, sa- the very same word. Jesus treats this woman with respect, with dignity. He uses a term of endearment, a term that is very respectful, that he even uses to, to talk to his own mom. mom. Woman. This is the kindest act, for sure, that this woman has seen. Like I said, Lord knows in how long. In being kind to her, He is restoring her dignity, her soul, that at this point is crushed. She is humiliated in front of people. Everybody knows her sin. And she's being accused before God and man. And Jesus Christ restores her And he asks her a question. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Wow! He could have have condemned her. He had the power and right, like we said, but he doesn't do it. And then he does something stunning. He says, Neither... Do I condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. He does not condemn the woman, but hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. The law condemns her. How can he just say, I don't condemn you? Isn't it wickedness to acquit someone who's guilty? Is God pleased if a judge acquits a murderer. Is God pleased if justice is not carried out? How is it that Jesus can say, can just say, I don't condemn you? Because this is at the core of the question. What they really want to know is reconciliation. In this question we see mercy and justice meeting. How can God forgive and justify wicked people, sinful people? doesn't love sin. He's not tempted by sin. He's not pleased by sin. He hates sin. This woman is guilty. She is guilty by the law. The law tells everybody that she is guilty. But Jesus says, I do not condemn you. How can he do that? And that, my friend, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is where The justice of God meets the mercy of God. He can say, I do not condemn you, because He would die for her. He would spill His own blood to atone for her sins. Therefore, He can pardon her. This is no acquittal. He's not saying she's not guilty. He will go on to say, now go, and from now on, sin no more. He is acknowledging that she is guilty, that she is sinning, that she is an adulterous woman. He didn't say anything to the contrary. But he's saying, I don't condemn you. He's not saying explicitly, I forgive you, but I don't condemn you. It means, I forgive you. And he only can say that. He only can atone for sins because his perfect life is worthy to what infinitely worthy 
and it can atone for every human being that would ever be born. The blood of Jesus is enough to atone for sins. And He is the only one that can say, I don't condemn you. He can forgive. He is God. He can forgive this woman. And, and that's what He does. That's what He does. I think her answer when she says, Lord, He says, where are they? She says, Lord, no one, no one condemns me. I think that implies faith when she calls Him Lord. I think it fits the context when he says, I forgive you. And I cannot help but be reminded of Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, where the Apostle Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Woman, where are your accusers? Nobody condemns you? Don't they condemn you? Back to Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Lord, they all laughed one by one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? This is exactly why He is just and the justifier of sinners. Because He bore on the cross the punishment of God for sins for all those who would trust in Him. He just did. And it's over. It's over. If you have been forgiven by God, it's over. Do not put the blood of Jesus on trial. Do not second guess His forgiveness. If you are forgiven, your sins are as far as the east is from the west. The blood of Jesus can wash away all of your sin. Neither do I condemn you. That's an awesome statement. It's an awesome statement. Now, this whole story, beautiful. She gets forgiven. It's a story of redemption. And it's awesome. We see our God. The whole point of the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In saying, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's forgiving her. But forgiveness in those days, it wasn't done like this. People didn't just proclaim forgiveness because this is a prerogative of God. Jesus is showing Himself to be much more than a mere prophet. He is showing Himself to be the one who has the right to dispense, to proclaim forgiveness, to give forgiveness of sins. Who is this man who even forgives sins? That's what He's saying. In saying, I forgive you, I do not condemn you, He is bypassing the whole sacrificial system. He is in front of the temple in which they carried out all the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Those sacrifices, they did not. They, you got to see this. They did not achieve, accomplish forgiveness of sins. They were types and shadows and symbols that pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the point of the message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when He says, I don't condemn you, He's bypassing the temple and the sacrificial system because He is where God abides. He is where the mercy of God comes from because He has borne the wrath of God against sins. 
being brought guilty and desperate before God on this side of eternity is the best thing that can happen to a sinner. When God strips you away of everything and does not allow you to play games with His Word and to justify your sin, and He brings you before Jesus, desperate, guilty, with no other hope but Jesus. That is the best thing that can happen to a sinner. And Jesus, once again, reveals Himself as a friend of sinners. Jesus, once again, says, Let Him come, if any man man or woman, thirst, let him come and drink. If you believe, out of your heart will flow, your heart will flow with rivers of living water. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who atones for sin. He is a friend of sinners. I am so glad that Jesus is called a friend of sinners. You know, when they gave him this name, they weren't even trying to be nice. But I am so glad that the name is stuck. I am so glad that He is a friend of sinners because I'm a sinner. I am so glad that I can call King Jesus my friend. Amen? Jesus is the friend of sinners and He is powerful to forgive all those who come to Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Amen? Can we be out of the stone-throwing business and be a people of blessing? Can we run to Him desperate for He is our only hope in life and death? Amen. Amen. Now we're going to sing. We're going to respond to God in worship. Behold Him as you sing. Behold His holiness and His sin-atoning blood on your behalf. Don't leave this place today not knowing Him. Not loving Him like crazy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your holiness, for Your goodness. We thank You for sending Jesus to live and die and be risen again in our behalf. We thank You for You are the just, you are just and the justifier of the wicked. I thank You for in Your Son, Jesus Christ, wrath and mercy are reconciled. Because He died, I live. Because He rose again, I can have hope for tomorrow. Now, Father, I pray that You would accept our worship and that You would be present in the midst of Your people, giving us joy as we behold the holiness, the beauty of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for Your glory and the salvation of Your people. And it is in His beautiful name that we pray and thank You. Amen.